a common path. It makes our job a lot easier when we all have a mutual understanding of what it is we're doing here and, and how to support uh, each other in the practice that we'll be undertaking. I just want to welcome you to the retreat briefly and acknowledge how important it is that we take this kind of time to take care of ourselves in a very deep and uncommon way to give ourselves the opportunity to really be with our own mind and body in a way that our daily life often doesn't allow or support. Not in order just to kind of get away from it all, but actually to get closer to it all. And while many of you know it's not always easy, it is always beneficial. So I want to uh, express my uh, appreciation and gratitude for you uh, wishing to take care of yourself in this way. It was more than 35 years ago that I also stumbled on my first retreat like this and really had no idea what I was getting into. But once the Dharma got into me, there was no getting it out. And so here I am, 35 years later, um, inviting you to consider the transformation that can occur and does occur if we are able to uh, nurture our relationship to the Dhamma, the truth, the way things are, and uh, to really grow older and wiser uh, as we move through this amazing journey called life. To my immediate right is Annie Nugent, who has been uh, a longtime Dharma practitioner, I think nearly as long as another three decades or so. Also, and has spent time in uh, Burma, also with uh, a common teacher that we've all had, Sayadaw Upandita, and has been teaching for six or eight years, I guess. Six or eight, ten? Eleven. Huh? Eleven. Eleven. This is something that happens with age. <laughs> years slip by unnoticed. But in any event, uh, we're happy to have you here, Annie. Uh, as you know, uh, Deborah Ratner-Helzer was originally, initially uh, scheduled to teach with us at this retreat, but her, she just had a baby, her second, and her husband was unable to get time off to babysit for her. So while she's fine and the baby's fine, um, they're not going to be here this week. So... We're happy to have Annie here to co-teach with us. And to her immediate right is my wife, uh, Kamala Masters, also um, another extraordinary yogi and someone who's been on the Dharma Trail for a long time, this lifetime, 35 years or more. Also has practiced in uh, Asia with our teacher, uh, Saito Upandita, as well as starting her practice with Anagarika Manindra of India for many years. And she too has been ordained as a nun a couple of times in Burma. So we think that we can cover the spectrum of uh, what, what it is that will be helpful for you in practicing here this week. Tonight we'll just take uh, a few minutes to sit. Uh, Annie will give us an opening uh, 
introduction to the, the practice and the retreat. And then we'll uh, formally uh, initiate the retreat with the taking of the refuges and precepts. So let's take a few moments just to sit and collect ourselves in our own spot so that we can properly receive the Dhamma that uh, Annie will be sharing with us. Just before Annie begins, I want to also acknowledge that. Thank you, John, for managing the retreat. And did you introduce Jill? I want to acknowledge that Jill also is an important part of managing this retreat uh, with us. And Sumi, I want to thank you also for taking on the, the, the chore of recording what we say. Thank you very much. Well, hello everyone. I'm happy to be able to fill in for Deb and really feel incredibly inspired by just seeing the fullness of the whole. You know, there are like something like 99 people here and covering a full range of ages, I think 21 to high 70s or maybe even more, I'm not sure. But it's just terribly inspiring to see such a commitment, such an interest in the Dharma. And what's really helpful for us, no matter how long we may have been practicing or whether we're brand new to the practice, it's really very helpful at the outset of a retreat to take a few minutes to reflect on what brings you to a place like this. What is it that brings you to a retreat or that has brought you to the Dharma. So perhaps for some of us, we have reflected on what it means to be a human being, the, the mystery of our human life. What is it all about? Or for others of us, perhaps on the, the younger end of the age spectrum, perhaps we're looking ahead at the, the lives that are coming before us and wondering how are we going to live this life? What are we going to do? How do we live it to our full potential? Or perhaps if we're on the older end of the spectrum, perhaps we look back at our life, at how we have lived it up until now, and then perhaps too we begin to see that Life is disappearing before us at a very rapid rate. And perhaps that inkling of impermanence might be creeping in for some of us without even verbalizing it. We look ahead and perhaps we don't know how much time we have left because we never know. 
so without realizing it, we're tapping into impermanence. And so we can get a, a sense of the preciousness of our life, the preciousness of the time that we have. And so for all of us, we want to use it in the wisest possible way that we can. And then perhaps for others of us, we have tapped into a life of difficulty, of pain, of of suffering. And out of that, we've come to the Dharma, wondering what is it all about? Where does this suffering come from? Why is life like this? So in reflecting in this way, we begin to see that what brings us to the Dharma is a wish to understand. We want to understand life and what it's all about. And so in order to do this, we're asked by the Buddha to look within, to look in a new direction. This is what he did too, when he wanted to know these answers to look in a new direction. Because we've spent our whole life looking outside of ourselves, looking for happiness in our lives through pleasant things and activities and people and fun things to do. And even though that might have brought us some temporary happiness, it hasn't delivered long-term. And so there might be this subtle sense of dissatisfaction underlying our lives. And so the Buddha has asked us to look within in a different direction, to come to know a world that we've never given ourselves the opportunity, taken the time to look in this inner direction, turning inward. So this is what brings us to do a retreat, to take ourselves away from our worldly activity and bring ourselves into a secluded setting like this to look in this new direction. So the Buddha said that if we're interested in coming to understand and are interested in true happiness, then look within this fathom-long body. But not just look. It's looking with a view to coming to understand what we see. And out of that, slowly, we will begin to get an inkling of how to live life in a wise and wholesome way. And out of that, we will suffer less and less and experience greater depths of happiness. So how do we look within? By means of mindfulness. This was the Buddha's great gift to us. We look using a mindfulness. And so you could say that we're training the mind by means of mindfulness. Training it to not simply act out in the way that it has for our whole life. Grasping after things that we want, getting rid of or pushing away things that we don't want. But now we're asked to train the mind by means of mindfulness. So this is what we're learning to do when we come to a specialized setting like this. To not act on our habitual habits that arise in the mind, the habitual tendencies that arise. So we're learning not to get rid of them because that's not what we're doing here. We're learning to come to understand to see what arises in the mind, to see it and not act on it. So you might say then that we're training the mind through understanding towards calm rather than agitation of mind. We're training the mind through understanding towards peace in the mind rather than busyness of mind. And you could say we're training the mind through understanding towards freedom in the mind 
rather than suffering in the mind. So it comes about through this training, this gradual understanding and a growing transformation comes about. So it's not about getting anything. We're not getting calm. We're not getting peaceful. But it naturally comes about through understanding as a result of mindfulness. So it's an exceptional gift that we're giving ourselves by being here. So we can actually rejoice. It's a rare thing in the world that we're doing here. Most people are out having fun at the beach, at the movies, doing some worldly activity. But you have chosen to come here to develop a deeper understanding of our human existence. So if there's any sneaky little doubts that might be arising in the mind, and it happens, oh no, I made the wrong decision, I shouldn't have come here, I should have done A, B, or C, really appreciate what you're doing here. It is such a rare activity in the world and with time we will begin to reap the benefits of what we're doing here. Not only does it transform our own lives, but it begins to transform our relationship with others. So sometimes people might think, oh, this is a very selfish thing that we're doing here sitting silently, doing our, looking within our own experience. It's not a selfish thing at all. It really affects everybody that we come into, come into contact with. Because it stands to reason, as an inner transformation comes about within us, how we relate to others is going to change too. So others are, beginning to, are going to experience what has been going on within us. So in this specialized setting, in these specialized conditions here, we're paring down our lives, you could say. We're letting go of our worldly life and living a life of simplicity and renunciation of all of the usual fun worldly activities that we engage in to live a life of simplicity here. And one of those things that we're renouncing is interacting with each other. This noble silence is a very precious support for us in our practice. By letting go of connecting with others outside of us, really what we're doing is learning to silently connect with ourselves. You, in a way, you might say that in the silence, our own hearts begin to speak. They begin to open and show us what we may never have seen before. So I'd really encourage you to respect the guidelines of the silence, not speaking secretly in the back in your room, especially if you've come with partners or friends. It can be very tempting. You know, it'd be, it'd be hard for us to resist doing this. So I'd encourage you to use this as an aspect of the practice. See if you can practice restraint and maintain the noble silence that's held here. In addition to that, we also ask that you not speak silently with your eyes. In other words, connecting with others through either body movements or eye contact, just in a very gentle way, keeping the attention of the eyes a little bit downward and not looking outward for attention or connecting with others. Now, this is often misunderstood. Sometimes people say, oh, that feels like a, a very unfriendly, kind of hostile quality that we're developing. Not at all. That's not what we're doing at all. Really what we're encouraging is befriending ourselves by allowing that energy to be maintained within our own sphere of experience, not letting it go outside of ourselves. Now that doesn't mean, for example, if you're walking through a door and somebody comes and walks 
right in front of you, walking in the opposite direction, that you immediately, immediately have to pull your eyes away and turn away. That's not what we're meaning. There may be the, the natural moment where you're both walking through a door and your eyes connect for a moment, but that's fine. Then you, you move on. So it's not a shutting down, rather it's not an active engaging with the eyes that we're talking about. And really by doing this, you're supporting the entire group to be able to feel safe and trust the space that they have here, that this noble silence is going to be respected by everybody and so we can all get on with the unfolding of our own practice. In addition to this, there'll be an opportunity in the hall every morning as well as during your interviews for you to ask questions of the teacher. So you really make use of that time. This is an opportunity where you can use your voice ask a question in the hall or during your interviews, rather than waiting for sometimes after the session in the hall and then feeling puzzled about something and feeling compelled to have to write a note about that. So rather using the time that's offered here or during your interviews. While we're here, we have all the time in the world to give ourselves to the practice at hand, listening to the instructions and simply being here, <coughs> dedicating ourselves to what the instructions ask of us. So we can relax, we can slow down, we're letting go of our worldly life, there's no family to feed, there are no pets to take care of, there's no garden to water, there are no telephones to answer, hopefully. So please put those cell phones far away in your car if you can, because there again is a big temptation to just check to see, that they, just, just check if the message is there and just one little text, but no. Really, you'll be doing yourself a great disservice if you do something like that. So really, here again, this will be the practice, to practice restraint, respecting what's asked of us here on the retreat. Put those cell phones away. They're not going to be a help for you while you're here on the retreat. So take your time around the place, relax into the space, into the practice, into your bodies. There's no rush. So giving yourself plenty of time to get to the hall, for example, so that you don't have to throw down what you're doing and have a mad stampede into the hall or, you know, rush off to the bathroom. Give yourself all the time you need. As we begin to slow down and settle down and the mind begins to quieten down somewhat, as I said, the heart begins to open and the full array of experience that might possibly be around, might possibly be available, will come. We don't know what it will be. Perhaps it will be pleasant experience. Perhaps for the first time ever we'll feel this sense of appreciation for ourselves, for what we're doing. Perhaps we really begin to taste the stillness, the silence in the hall, and feel the beauty of that. It's rare to spend nine days in silence. Perhaps we tap into that. Perhaps we tap into the fact that we have nearly a hundred people all here with a common purpose of working towards coming to understand this mind-body process. And we feel the togetherness of this group of people. So these are all beautiful qualities that we might open to. Then again, 
we may open to difficult experience. So there's the pleasant and there's the unpleasant. But as the practice unfolds, can we learn to open to the full range of what might be offered to us? Did you hear what I said? Can we learn to open to? Because it's a learning process. It doesn't come just like that. It takes time. It isn't easy. So it is a a slow, organic unfolding. That's what this practice is about. It doesn't happen in one night, in one nine-day retreat, in one year. It takes time, a very organic, gentle unfolding. So to support ourselves in this practice of unfolding, there are several qualities that come to mind, and I'm sure they'll be mentioned several times over the days in the retreat. One of them is patience. This practice takes tremendous patience. We can't force wisdom. It takes time to unfold. If we try to force anything, all it does is create agitation. So really remembering this quality of patience. It also takes effort. Nothing actually happens without any effort. But the kind of effort is tricky. So this too is a dance. We'll be learning about this as well. Not too much, not too little. How to navigate this dance of the right amount of effort. It also takes the quality of kindness. Many of us can be very harsh and self-judgmental. We come to a retreat like this and we expect the mind to be quiet immediately. We hear the instructions and we expect ourselves to get it right, right away. And so we can start to beat ourselves up. This isn't helpful at all. So learning to bring this gentle tone of voice, silent tone of voice to our practice, this gentle attitude of heart, very important for us in the practice. So it is a gentle approach. We can't force the practice. That is counterproductive. And then too, Although it's a gentle, patient quality that we're instilling within, there is also the quality of wise determination. This is encouraging ourselves, where we're putting our arms around ourselves, you might say, and encouraging ourselves gently. Come on, let's see if we can do this. This is a wise determination that we're talking about. Then too, there is sincerity of heart. Just bringing the simple sincerity to each moment of our practice. This will go such a long way to supporting the developing unfolding of our practice. And then too, there's generosity of heart. Our willingness to give ourselves to the moment. That's a quality of generosity. Can I be with this? There's generosity there as opposed to no. So exploring these qualities too is part of the development of the strengthening of the mind, the training of the mind to be with whatever might show itself in the practice for you. Our lives out in the world are very busy, lots of activity, a lot going on for us out in this marketplace, you might say. So we come to a retreat and then we have all these expectations. We're going to do this. This is how it's going to unfold. Last time the practice worked so wonderfully and this happened. And so this time, this is how it's going to work. Or we have this agenda. Last time this happened, now I'm going to go a step further, so to speak, and now I'm going to aim for such and such. Or we look over at the next yogi and they look like they're 
almost enlightened. And so, right, look at them. Now, we're going to do the same thing that we imagine. And it's only an imagine, imagining, because you never know what's going on. So all of these expectations are nothing but a setup for suffering. So really watch the mind. Can we have a simple freshness of mind? Be here with beginner's mind. If you're a beginner, great. Very few expectations very often. But it's when we've been here once or twice or more than that, then these expectations creep in. So really, fresh presence of mind, beginner's mind, the willingness to start anew with what's here now. The Buddha had a great deal of confidence in us and our ability to do the practice. He said to us that he wouldn't ask us to do this practice if he didn't think that it was possible. But he asks us because it is possible. Can we too develop this confidence in ourselves, in our own ability to do the practice too? Because as we do this, you'll find that your willingness to do the practice will grow. And out of that, more and more understanding will begin to flourish within you too. The Buddha also said that he only points the way. That it's up to each one of us to do the work for ourselves. Just gently, patiently, just a step at a time. And out of this, the rest will unfold. So I invite you to take up the Buddha's invitation. He invited us to come and take a look at the Dharma. He invited us to explore the practice that he discovered. So may you all take up this invitation and may it bring the deepest results for you. Thank you. I'll pass you on to Kamala now. So this evening I'd like to speak a little bit about the refuges and the precepts which we will be taking now to formally begin our practice. And then every morning at the first morning sitting between 5.30 and 6.30, you'll also be taking the refuges and precepts. I imagine that there are most of you are familiar with them already, but maybe some of you aren't familiar with take, the taking of refuges and precepts. Can I see a hand of how many of you have not taken the refuges and precepts yet? Okay. So it's, it's good to have an understanding of what we are doing when we take these refuges and precepts because it doesn't have to be a religious kind of a thing that we do. It's more of um, understanding what we're doing very deeply, finding a place where we feel some deep safety uh, in what we're doing, and really turning the mind to that safety, especially when we're in a place of where we feel a little bit shaky or unstable about our practice. When I first came into the Dharma about 35 years ago or more, I came into the Dharma uh, from a background of being a Catholic Christian, and I still very much revere my, my background and the ways uh, that my parents raised me and uh, understanding the beauty of the goodness of heart. But I really wanted to understand more about training the mind, opening the heart even more to whatever needed to be opened to, to deeply understand the truth and the liberating truth. And so when I came and started to take the precepts, uh, the refuges and the precepts, my first teacher, Anagarika Munindra, uh, explained to me that you needn't have to take uh, the Buddha as a god. In fact, the Buddha was not a god. 
The God, uh, the Buddha was a human being just like you. And because he was a human being and because he was able to really open his heart, to train his mind, to understand how it is to, uh, to be liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion, and to experience the truth so deeply uh, to be free from suffering. To understand that this was a human being can be a great deal of, uh, can give you a great deal of refuge, can make you feel that it's possible for you too to, uh, to reach this place of deep understanding and the, un- and the way to uh, a very deep kind of letting go. So I understood about taking refuge in the Buddha, which is the first refuge we'll, which we will be taking this <coughs> evening. It's a way of taking refuge in my own potential to awaken. And this is what uh, the Buddha as a human being was able to do, to find a way within his own heart, within his own life, to awaken to the truth of how it is. So when I take refuge in the Buddha, I'm taking refuge in my own potential to awaken. And that's what I offer to all of you, as my teacher Anagarika Munindra had offered to me, to really uh, have a place in my own heart of great confidence that it's possible for us as human beings to awaken in this very life. After taking refuge in the Buddha, which traditionally we do uh, three times, we'll take refuge in the Dhamma. And the Dhamma isn't about the doctrine, really. Uh, The Dhamma, you can take refuge in the Dhamma, meaning uh, the way things are. There are the teachings of the Buddha, which are uh, also considered the Dhamma. But... I've learned that it makes it easier to take refuge in the Dhamma as the way things are, to be able to open with awareness to the truth of how things are in the moment. So when I take refuge in the Dhamma, I really am opening my heart and my mind and uh, inclining my life to taking refuge in how things are in the present moment, to really be able to rest in the present moment in a way that gives me a great deal of safety because I can really touch the earth there. I can touch the heart there, the universal heart, the heart in my own body. So taking refuge in the Dhamma can be taking refuge in your own heart, in the truth that you find in your own heart. You'll hear a lot of teachings here over this nine days of retreat. Some of it will resonate with you and some of it won't. And the, the part that resonates with you is a part that you can really take refuge in. During the time that I was young in the Dhamma, when the teachings came and I didn't understand them, when the Dhamma was offered uh, through Dhamma talks or through uh, direct interchange with my own teachers, and I didn't understand it, I was able to just put it aside and to just feel like later it will come when my own experience comes to the point where I can connect the dots by myself, then I'll really be able to stand in that truth. And indeed, uh, that along the way, that has happened for me. Of course, there's much more to be understood, to be realized, but uh, I really can trust that experiential understanding of the Dhamma. So taking refuge in the Dhamma is really taking refuge in the truth of how things are. And then we take refuge in the Sangha. Taking refuge in the Sangha means taking refuge in those who have understood and realized the truth completely. Traditionally, this is what it means, taking refuge in those beings who have been, shall we say, fully purified or purified to some degree. Um, there are various uh, uh, degrees that people are purified, uh, meditators are purified from greed, hatred, and delusion. 
And when one is fully purified, being an arahant or fully enlightened being, when I take refuge, I remember those beings, even though I may not know them. Some of them I, I may know, but I'm not sure they're fully enlightened. Uh, I really connect with them in my heart. I just let my heart go and connect with all those beings who have understood the truth deeply. And I can rest there. I can rest in knowing that there are beings who understand the truth very deeply. And um, perhaps it's from just from my own background of um, being raised in, in the Christian Catholic tradition that I feel that my heart can open to the mystery of life. It doesn't really have to know everything to uh, be able to relax. I can relax in the mystery of knowing that we can connect with those beings. That is the traditional way of understanding the Sangha. The Sangha are those beings who have been liberated. But there's a way of understanding the Sangha which is important to all of us here. And that's understanding the Sangha as each other. Because when we're here and we take refuge in the Sangha, we are the Sangha. We, and then there are, there are those yogis, meditators, people on the path that are not in this hall, but all thousands, millions all over the world who are also taking refuge in the Sangha. And so we can connect with all of them as well. It gives me a great deal of uh, stability to be able to do that, to just open my heart and say, I take refuge in all of those people who are also taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. And I can feel really, really held in that when things get a little shaky for me in my practice, in my heart. So taking refuge in the Sangha is taking refuge in each other as we work here, as we do our practice together. It's really important to remember that it's not just about us taking refuge in everybody else around us. It's also important to remember that that other people are taking refuge in us, in our ability to support the container of the retreat, to really stay within the parameters that are uh, being asked of all of us so that we can keep a sense of quietness, we can keep a sense of stillness in the hall. We, We all know that everyone else is doing the best they can to keep the precepts. And so when we take refuge in the Sangha, also reflecting that everyone here is taking refuge in the potential that I also am a support in this Sangha, that the people next to me are really looking to me to hold my my dignity here in the hall and uh, around the grounds here and to have respect for the Dhamma and each other as we're practicing the Dhamma. So all of those parameters and guidelines that have been given, we really um, appreciate your respecting with um, the utmost dignity of your own heart. So that's taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. And traditionally, it's three times for each one. They really want to, we really want to make sure that we're not just mumbling along, that we're really taking it in. And then we, uh, we take the precepts. The precepts aren't commandments that if we break, then you know there's going to be some penance for you. Um, the, the, the precepts that we take are also guidelines. They're um, the undertaking of the practice to refrain from things, from doing and saying things that might harm ourselves or harm others. And we'll be saying all of this in Pali, which is the ancient language that the Buddha's uh, teachings were recorded in initially. So I just want to translate some of it for you. It's translated on the paper that you'll be having uh, to look after when when we're actually reciting. But you can take a look for yourself. Find the paper, pick it up, 
And the first precept has to do with undertaking the training to refrain from harming any living being. So this not only is a training to refrain from, but also we learn to practice generosity and we practice the protection of life uh, when we do this. So when we refrain from uh, harming any living being, we're careful in this environment, of course, not harming others, but also the smallest being which we can see or know of um, little mosquitoes or uh, little gnats, being careful that we're not just automatically taking our hand up and slapping at it to kill it, really uh, practicing that gentleness of loving kindness. Maybe we just need to shoo it away just gently with our hands. Um, It really helps us to understand and to be mindful of the harming that can come up in our minds just very automatically by habit, the ill will that can come up. We get to see that. And then when it comes up, in the mind, we get to see it there with mindfulness and then to refrain from acting it out. It's a very, very powerful training to do that. And the second training has to do with refraining from taking what has not been offered. So, of course, this means refraining from stealing. And all of us are beings that wouldn't do that, I'm sure. Um, But also to be really careful if something is laying around and you and nobody has offered it to you actually that you just leave it there it's a wonderful feeling when we're in a group like this of a hundred more than a hundred with the staff here that we can leave things and we can come back maybe a day or two later and oh I happen to leave my shawl there or my cup there and we can go back and we can still find it there when that happens with us, we feel such an inviolable sense of inner safety that it really helps our hearts to open when we give that gift to one another, that gift of very deep safety. So the third one has to do with refraining from acting out our sexual impulses. And this doesn't mean that anything sexual is wrong or bad. It just means that we keep those impulses to ourselves and we, uh, we watch those impulses with our mindfulness practice and we use that watching and that mindfulness and that awareness of those impulses, we use that as our awareness training. We refrain from acting it out in any way. That really helps us in a very deep level to practice restraint it's, it's really incredible how, can, how you can understand the power of restraint from doing that. Of course, it's also a gift to one another. We have in this, in this circle of uh, Dhamma and these retreats, we have what we call a Vipassana romances. We, those initials are VR. When we say, oh, people are having a VR with this person's having a VR with another person. And it's really interesting how we watch, because when I was much younger in the Dharma, I, I experienced it from others towards me, and I myself experienced it towards others. And I learned later on how, um, how it really did not help another person's practice, and it did not help my practice by having that attention back and forth. So really respect one another's practice by just keeping that energy to oneself. It's another gift that we give to one another. The fourth one is refraining from speaking an untruth. Here we're greatly protected by the vow of silence that we're all taking, except for during times of interview and times when you have questions in the hall. And of course, you might need to speak to somebody about your yogi job, which is just fine. But other than that, or of course an emergency, but other than that, it's we're really taking the vow of silence. And uh, that goes a long, long ways in helping our minds to be still 
when the mind is still, it can, it's like a still forest pool. And it can see deeply into the mind. When you can imagine a still forest pool that you can just look into and see very deeply into the pool what is going on. You can also see your, your true reflection in a still pool. So by stilling the pool, uh, it really helps to keep the mind free from chatter. So by keeping the silence, that means refraining from notes to one another. Um, and a special mention of that to those of you who are here with friends or partners, please refrain from giving notes to one another I've been in retreats before where very caring yogis have given me a note and it's disturbed the mind for days on end. Somebody who wants something from me or is asking me, why haven't you looked at me? You know, or uh, something like that. And then my mind is wondering, oh, maybe I should write a note. Maybe not. It will disturb that person. Or why is this person writing me a note? I'm trying to quiet the mind. So all of these things can really disturb another person, even though you think you're writing a note out of caring. It could really kind of throw a rock in the the pool of that person's mind. So being very careful about that. This also means texting on your cell phone. It's it's this age where uh, we're faced with that now, and so now we're having to include that in our vow of silence to remind you that cell phone use, including texting, reading, um, going on the web, even on your cell phones, this is, uh, in essence, it's breaking that vow. So we're really asking you to please keep the integrity and your own dignity of holding that vow with great sacredness. Um, You're not going to die without your cell phone. Nobody has died yet that we know about. If there's an emergency, it will come through the central office and you will know. So it would be one of the greatest renunciations to put your cell phone away and put it in your car, turn it off. I know how hard it is. I heard a a research done uh, recently that it was easier for people to stop smoking than to put away their cell phone. So um, it's great renunciation. And the last one has to do with refraining from taking intoxicants or anything that will cloud the mind. This makes the mind much clearer. Um, Things that cloud the mind bring delusion to the mind, and this is what we're letting go of, greed, hatred, and delusion. So these five trainings are for all lay people, for all of us, also for all uh, people in robes. These are um, the trainings of non-harming and restraint. And the last three have to do with renunciation, basically. The uh, sixth one has to do with undertaking the training to refrain from taking food after the noontime meal. And... uh, This uh, is something that a lot of people like to do during a practice such as this because it really helps the uh, retreat to become much simpler for you. We'll explain more about this as the days go by. If you don't take solid food, you will be served juices and you can have uh, um, anything clear like tea or clear juices in the afternoon after the noontime meal. So some of you may want to take this for the whole retreat or maybe just a day at a time. We'll um, kind of encourage you to do that as the days go by if you want to. These last three are you don't have to take. Uh, It's just if, if you want to, if you feel like it would serve your practice. Let me get a sense now of how many of you know outright that you would like to take the eight precepts, which include this one, not taking food after the noontime meal. So I can get a sense with the kitchen. Hold your hand up high. 12, 13. Okay. There probably will be a list up um, to sign so the kitchen knows how many of you won't be taking the the meal in, in the afternoon. The tea, I mean, in the afternoon. And then the next one is to refrain from 
dancing, singing, music, unseemly shows, um, from the use of garlands, perfumes, unguents, from things that tend to beautify and adore the mind, adorn the body. These are distractions that... um, we're, We're really trying to give up distractions here. And it's been really helpful for me when I've taken the eight precepts to just be as simple as possible, not to have to look in the mirror too much or to do anything that, you know, has to do with makeup or perfume that I might be very looking for something sweet to smell, but to be very careful about uh, keeping it simple and refraining from any distractions. And the last one has to do with uh, refraining from the use of high and luxurious seats and beds, which we don't have any here at all, so you don't have to be concerned about that. But sometimes people like to make it a practice of just being careful that they're not trying to look for comfort all over the place, you know, for looking for that cushy chair or, um, you know, a place where we can just lay down and be really um, bring our pillows outside and get all comfy, build our nest outside somewhere. Just being careful that the mind isn't always looking for a place to find a pleasant uh, place to just kind of get distracted in. So these are the trainings that we can take. The last three are uh, just from your own choice, if you want to. And the first five are ones that we take all together. So Steve is going to lead us in that now. The first one I forgot to mention is paying homage to the Buddha. It's like paying respects to our benefactor. So I think all of you have a chant sheet, or anybody doesn't have a chant sheet? One. John will get you a copy outside. And on the left-hand column, you'll see that there's the chanting in written in the Pali language, the language that the Buddha's teachings were originally recorded in. And on the right is the meaning of that, those phrases in English. And we like to chant in Pali, the language of Pali, in part because for more than 2,500 years, nearly 2,600 years, hundreds of thousands of beings every day are taking these refuges and precepts. And in some ways it uh, links our commitment to this aspiration and the commitment to the uh, precepts with the momentum of their lives. It's not meant to be some meaningless ritual or mumbo jumbo. So please, if you make it a practice, if you can make it a practice of really paying homage to the Buddha out of appreciation for hearing the teachings and taking the, re- the refuges as a kind of a, an expression of your aspiration, may I learn to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and then the precepts as a, an expression of your commitment to being here in a very dignified and wholesome way, then it's not a meaningless mumbo-jumbo, but rather something that's significant, a significant practice of awareness for you. And you might notice that when some of us come into the hall or before we sit down, we turn to the Buddha Rupa, the Buddha image here. And sometimes we'll just hold our hands in uh, respect or sometimes we'll bow. Uh, And for myself, it's a silent taking of the refuges at the beginning of the sitting and a silent sharing of the merit at the end of the sitting. If you wish, you can bow, you can do this, you can do nothing, you can do full prostrations. It's up to you as long as it's a mindfulness practice. Don't do it just because everybody else seems to be doing something and maybe you should. There's no should here as far as bowing or anything like that. So if it's valuable to you and it's a meaningful practice, then you can do that. If it's not, don't. So tonight and for the first couple of mornings, I will chant one phrase line uh, 
and ask you to repeat after me. And after a few days, when you know how the song goes, then we can chant in unison. Okay? So please repeat after me. <clears throat> Namo, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama Sambodasa, Sama Sambodasa, Namo, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama Sambodasa, Sama Sambodasa, Namo, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama Sambodasa, Sama Sambodasa, Budang Saranang Budang Saranangga Chami, Tamang Saranangga Chami, Tamang Saranangga Chami, Sangang Saranangga Chami, Sangang Saranangga Chami, Dutiampi Budang Saranangga Chami. Dutiampi budang saranangga chami Dutiampi damang saranangga chami Dutiampi damang saranangga chami Dutiampi sanggang saranangga chami Dutiampi sanggang saranangga chami Tatiampi budang saranangga chami Tatiampi budang saranangga chami Tatiampi damang saranangga chami Tatiampi damang saranangga chami Tatiampi sanggang saranangga chami Tatiampi sanggang saranangga chami Panatipata Panatipata we ramani we ramani sika badang sika badang samadhiyami samadhiyami hadina dana hadina dana we ramani we ramani sika badang sika badang samadhiyami samadhiyami abrahmacharya abrahmacharya we ramani we ramani sika badang sika badang samadhiyami samadhiyami musawada Musawada we ramani we ramani sika badang sika badang samadhiyami samadhiyami sura meraya sura meraya majapamadatana majapamadatana we ramani we ramani sika badang sika badang samadhiyami samadhiyami and now for those of you who are taking the additional three precepts please repeat after me we kala bojana we kala bojana we ramani we ramani sika badang sika badang samadhiyami samadhiyami Nacha Gita, Nacha Gita, Wadita, Wadita, Wisuka Dasana, Wisuka Dasana, Malaganda, Malaganda, Vilepana, Vilepana, Dharana, Dharana, Mandana, Mandana, Vibhusanatana, Vibhusanatana, We Ramani, We Ramani, Sika Badang, Sika badang samadhiyami, samadhiyami, uchasayana, 
Ushasayana, Mahasayana, Mahasayana, We Ramani, We Ramani, Sika Badang, Sika Badang, Samadhyami, Samadhyami. And now all of us can repeat the final phrase. Idang me silang, idang me silang, magapalanyanasa, magapalanyanasa, pachayo, pachayo tu. So with that, we'll wrap it up this evening, having entered the silence of the retreat and let you all take a, some time to recharge your batteries, laying in bed, sleeping if possible. And in the morning, the bell will ring to call us all together to practice the Dhamma again. So when we come to the hall uh, at whatever it is, 5.30 I think, then we'll take the refuges and precepts each day at that time and have a sitting before breakfast and we'll be on our way. So again, thank you all for choosing to come and spend your time in this way. We'll see you in the morning. <laughs>